0: Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke chapter 17. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sin has ripple and ripple and ripple and ripple and ripple effects on humanity. And sin is never done alone in isolation. People think they're doing a sin all on their own. No, it affects the family. It affects the world. It affects the mystical body of Christ. Sin always, always affects others. And so, Scandalon, right now in the papers, we have a perfect example of Scandalon, intrinsic evil-making others fall. And it's the church, they're even calling it, this is one of the news stations, the church abuse scandal. It's a scandalon. It's a scandalon because it's an evil behavior or attitude that leads another into sin or a destructive behavior. It's a scandalon because an evil person or an evil thing by which one is entrapped or drawn into the error of sin. It's very serious for those who cause this. Very serious, gravely serious. And also the children or a person who's trapped in an act like this, there's ramifications, you know, for their life and their future life. So it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than one should cause one of the little ones to sin. Physical death is an absolute certainty. But until physical death, until we die, there is still room to repent from any sin and to spare ourselves from eternal spiritual death in hell forever, right? For all of us, hell's a choice. You know, We have to choose to repent. We repent or we don't, it's, it's our choice. He'll forgive us if we repent. Even the size of a little mustard seed, faith that much, he will forgive you. If you have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to the sycamore tree, be rooted up and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, does Jesus literally want us rooting up trees? Is that what he's saying? Because some people take these verses literally, but they are hyperbole in the Hebrew language. And this is a modern day hyperbole. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Well, does that mean that I literally want to eat a horse? No, it's hyperbole. So a hyperbole is an exaggerated statement or claim that is not meant to be taken literally. So Jesus literally doesn't want us uprooting trees. He wants us to have faith in him. And just mustard seed-sized faith can uproot those deep, deep sins, especially unforgiveness. And redemption is possible, which is the tiniest bit of faith, while we still have breath. And that's because of his grace. Those roots of grace can redeem us. And Paul says that you might be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And and that with this type of grace, you would have power at work within you to be able to do far more abundantly anything that you ask or think. So I want to also tell you a misinterpretation of this passage because it happened in my family. This is a hyperbole. It's not meant to be taken literally. This is how Matthew says it. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So when my dad was dying of cancer, and he was a man of great faith, a woman came from another church, and she told my dad on his deathbed, if you had faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you could tell that cancer to leave your body, and it'd be gone. You don't have enough faith, Mike. So I guess my dad didn't even have a little speck, because he died three months later of cancer I think his faith was mountain size, yet he still died, and he showed us how to die, and he placed his total faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, it's an hyperbole. I just don't want you to misuse it because I've heard it misused like that. Jesus was saying that even a tiny bit of faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, would help you overcome mountainous obstacles in your life. If you have that kind of faith, be not afraid I am with you through it all. And so a few years later, her own husband died of cancer. And I don't know what she must have thought, you know, but it's, it's a misinterpretation of the scripture. One last application of the mustard seed faith. In the midst of the crusades, fighting had been fierce. The sultan wanted there to be a definitive end to the battle. The Sultan of Egypt, Malek al-Kamil, a nephew of Saladin, declared that anyone who delivered to him the head of a Christian would be rewarded with a Byzantine gold piece. By August of 1219, his army succeeded in defeating the stronghold that was in Egypt, killing about 5,000 crusaders in the process. Then came Saint Francis of Assisi in 1219 during the Fifth Church Crusade to Egypt. He met with the sultan. He was captured by the Saracens and taken to the sultan in Egypt. And St. Francis challenged the imans to a duel to prove which was the true religion, Catholicism or Islam. Light a bonfire, said St. Francis to the sultan, and have your iman enter the fire along with me. Whoever emerges from the flames unhurt, his god is the true god. The sultan thought this was a good idea. The Iman did not. (laughs) And so we see this painting of St. Francis and the Sultan all over, in Assisi especially. And from that moment on, the Sultan gave Francis and his friars safe passage to travel anywhere in the Muslim territories unhindered because he was so moved by the strong faith of St. Francis. So St. Francis had become a channel of peace between the Sultan and the church, and God had heard the prayer of St. Francis to make me an instrument, a channel of your peace where there's hatred, let me bring love, injury, pardon, where there's doubt, what? True faith in you. He had faith the size of a mustard seed, and he used it mightily. Okay, some other sayings of Jesus tonight. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down? Or will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and gird yourself and serve me till I eat and drink and afterward you shall eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that is commanded you, Say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I pray that I can say that. Jesus washes feet in John 13 at the Last Supper before he dies. You remember Jesus said to Peter that he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet because he's clean all over, but just your feet are not. The water of baptism washes our bodies clean. Our feet get dirty with sin, and we need confession to wash our feet. He said, I'm the servant. I'm the, I've washed your feet. Now you ought to wash one another's feet. He's talking to a new priesthood about the sacrament of confession. I've given you an example that you should also do as I have done for you. This is how St. Augustine interpreted these verses. It's an analogy that Jesus was washing feet as a servant, greatest servant of all, but it was a predictor of the new priesthood and that they would be hearing confession and washing away sin. So total bathing, baptism, baptism total foot-washing confession, two sacraments. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. God, the master, is doing the forgiving. But if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, I've been teaching Bible for the last 18 years, and I get paid zero. (laughs) I mean, nothing. My paycheck is zero. We have no budget from the archdiocese, nothing. It's all, all the leaders. It's all just because we get to. What a duty it is, what a pleasure it is. And when I read these verses, sometimes I think, oh, I should get a job where I can make money with the archdiocese, or I should get a job as a school teacher, I should get paid, you know, because it's fun to bring home a paycheck. And then I read this verse and I put my name in there. Sharon, when you have done all that I commanded you, say, I am an unworthy servant. I have only done which was my duty to serve you, Lord. And I was just so comforted by that. I just knew that was right. That rang true to me. It reminded me of Mary, the model disciple, the perfect disciple. What did he ask her to do? What was her duty? She wasn't looking to be an unwed, teenage, pregnant woman subject to being stoned to death. That wasn't the job she was looking for, but that was the duty she was asked to do. And what did Mary say? Behold, I am a handmaid. I'm a servant. I'm a slave of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. She didn't need a paycheck. She didn't need her name in the paper. She didn't need this. She didn't need that. So all of us have been given a duty as Christians. Every single person in here, no one's off the hook. Seeking truth class, when you have done all that he commanded each and every single one of you to do in his kingdom's work, can we say, I am unworthy servant. I have only done that which was my duty. It was a pleasure to serve you, Lord. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I'm going to set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Come and eat the eternal banquet of the Lamb of God. I'll pull up a chair with you. So now the lepers. Jesus is cleansing 10 lepers tonight. He is on the way to Jerusalem, and he's passing between a very important border between Samaria and Galilee. Now we have already heard about one Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. It was the parable of the good Samaritan. There was one good Samaritan, right? Well, actually, there were two good Samaritans because the one tonight is good too. And Jesus is teaching here and I'm just being facetious. Okay, so Samaria is right in the middle between Galilee and Judea. It's really, you got to go through it. You could go way around the long way, but it's very treacherous. You want to, so he's going through, he's right there on the border. Now, if you remember from Isaiah, when the first part of Isaiah, we were talking about the Assyrian exile. The king of Assyria captured Samaria. They were part of the Northern kingdom of Israel. And he deported the Israelites to Assyria. And when they got to come back and resettle Samaria in 2 Kings 17, the king of Assyria brought people from five different countries, Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hama, and Seraphim, remember? Five different husbands that intermarried with the Samaritans, giving them five new baals, five new husbands, five new gods. So, So the Jews disdained them, hated them, And to the Jews, Samaria was like a woman with five husbands. She had betrayed the God of Israel and was was a half-breed. The woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, she had five husbands. That's symbolic. And the one she was living with now was not her husband. He was the sixth. And Jesus is saying, I can be number seven, the perfect bridegroom, the God that you were supposed to be your only husband in a new covenant. Okay, so 10 lepers, and they're on their way. To Jerusalem, he's passing between Samaria and Galilee. The lepers have to stay out of town. They have to be there in their own colony because it's contagious. And they have to cry out by Levitical law, unclean, unclean, if anyone's getting anywhere close to them. So the lepers are calling out to Jesus. He enters a village. He's met by 10 lepers who stand at a distance and they lift up their voices. And you think they're going to say unclean, but they say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now at mass, the priest walks right by us, right past all of us sinners, because leprosy in the Bible is an analogy for sinners. And we say the confidior right at the beginning of mass, Jesus walks by and we say, I confess to almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned and my thoughts and my words and what I've done, what I have failed to do through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. And that's mea copa in Latin. That's Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Just like the leopards, Jesus is walking past and we're calling out, Lord, have mercy on me. And at mass, right after the confitier, only the priest can give absolution. And we're absolved of venial sin right there. Every mass you go to. And he says, may almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins and bring us to everlasting life. And we say, amen, yes, so be it, it is so. So Lord, have mercy. And we say the Kyrie Leia sign, striking our chest. And we say it three times, the divine number. And we say, Lord, have mercy. And then we say, Christ, have mercy. And Christ means the anointed one, Messiah. We believe it is you, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. That just reminded me so much of the lepers. We are sinners, and we are begging to be back in covenant with you, Lord. We don't want to live outside of town. We want to be back in righteousness with you, back in right standing, back in covenant with you and with the church, the community. we're, We're ostracized. We're sinners. So Jesus, this is symbolic for sin. I want you to really think about this. He is restoring the divine order. We know that number is 10. How many lepers are there? 10. How many commandments were there? 10. What is right order? 10. All 10 of those lepers are going to be fully, fully restored. All 10. They lift up their voices. They say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't say, I heal you. He says, go and show yourself to the priest." All 10 are restored by Jesus with the command, go and show yourself to the priest. Restoring the divine order. This, this is fallen mankind. He's separated from God. He's alienated by sin. It's being restored, perfect 10. If you read Leviticus 13 and 14 and there's no way I can go through it in a class period, they're long chapters, but they're all about leprosy and every single condition of leprosy and show a priest, show a priest, show a priest, show a priest, all the way through the chapter. This is how God set it up. Only a priest can declare a leper clean in the old Testament. And remember, leprosy is an analogy for sin. Only a priest can declare a leper clean. Then why didn't Jesus declare him clean? In the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, only a priest can declare the leper clean. Go and show yourself to the priest. Only a priest can declare the leper clean. And so we stand in line to be declared clean, because we're unclean, unclean, because we're full of sin when we go to confession. We stand in line. Sin is like leprosy in the Bible, Okay, Leprosy is an allegory for sin in the Bible. And I'm going to go through some leprous conditions, and I want you to be thinking in your mind of sin and see how they're similar. So leprosy is like sin. It's highly contagious. It spreads. It spreads. If it's not taken care of, it spreads. It starts out slow. Like a small lesion, maybe on the bottom of your foot you didn't see it, and it keeps going, and it spreads quickly if it's unchecked or untreated. That's why we go to confession regularly, like once a month, because if it goes unchecked or untreated, it really spreads in our lives. It can affect our vision your eyes, the, the ancient thought is the eye is the light to the soul and Leprosy affects your ophthalmolic nerves because there's a bacteria with leprosy and it will cause a secondary eye infection and the lepers can get to the point where they can never close their eyes. And so it leaves them very vulnerable to secondary eye infections and very hard for their eyes, which leads to total blindness and darkness and total isolation. And I think of St. Paul in sin being just totally blinded and just being in total darkness for those three days. And it can have cartilage destruction. The bacteria in the nasal mucosa cause large immune reaction. And the cartilage collapses, can never be brought back. So you have a distorted image. Does sin distort your image? You're creating the divine image of God. And when we sin, our image of God, we, we don't look like God so much anymore. It distorts our image. Leprosy distorts the original image. And then the nerve damage. Maybe one of the strongest correlations with sin. Leprosy starts out by affecting the small nerves in the skin surface, but then the larger nerves in the elbow, the wrist, the knee, the ankle can all become affected and the nerves damage and we lose the sensation and we become numb. So when you're trapped in sin, you become numb to its effects in your life. You become paralyzed. You make rationalizations, you make excuses, you're just numb and they start losing limbs and fingers. Because the numbing effects, they'll stub or they'll, they'll, they'll traumatize the areas. The clawed hands, fingers become rigid, and the patient loses the function of their fingers. And then the rigidity of the, the clawed hands help make them not be able to earn a living anymore because they can't work. So that destroys human dignity. Like sin destroys our human dignity. It's very contagious. It spreads so the person gets removed from society. People don't want to live with you anymore. You get out of communion, out of covenant with God and neighbor. It affects the individual person and the whole community. What if that's your mom? What if that's your grandma? What if she's pulled out in a leper colony and you can't see her anymore? So leprosy is isolating and it's a very spiritual allegory all the way through the Bible for sin. Now, I'm not saying people with leprosy are sinners, okay? I'm just saying it's an analogy, an allegorical analogy to sin. John Vianney heard thousands and thousands of confessions every year. And I just think of us as lepers, we're sinners. And we, as they were going to the priest to be healed, we go to the priest and you're waiting in the line and you know, you're going to be healed and you know, you're going to be healed. And you know, when you repent, the priest is going to say, I absolve you. You're going to be healed. Jesus wants you to forgive yourself. But Jesus doesn't want you to forgive yourself. He's made a priesthood to forgive you. Do you see what I'm saying there? He wants you to forgive yourself. But some people feel they can, go, they, they can just forgive themselves. But Jesus made a priesthood for that. And he made it back in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek, who was a priest forever, who blessed Abraham and brought out bread and wine. And Abraham tithed to him a tenth, one out of 10. And he was the king of peace, Salem, Shalom. And the priesthood is the one that God has given this honor to absolve us and to remove the sin, to remove our leprosy, our spiritual leprosy, and to absolve us. In his name? No. In the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, is this the only way that God can forgive sin? God can work outside of the sacraments because he's God. I don't know all the things he can do. I can't imagine all the things he can do, but I know for 100% certain that his healing grace is at work in the sacrament of confession through an ordained priest in the order of Melchizedek. I know that 100%. So that's what I choose to do. Go to confession. The thief on the cross, the good thief, he wasn't baptized, but he was with Jesus that day in paradise, even without baptism, because it was called a baptism of desire. They were hanging there on the cross. Jesus couldn't baptize him. But it was a baptism of desire in his heart and God knows the heart. So Jesus knows the heart of every repentant sinner. I'm not going to say I know that he can't forgive outside of this sacrament because I know he can, but I know this is the way he set it up all the way through the Bible that you go to the priest, go to the priest, go to the priest. Even Jesus said that, go show yourself to the priest. And when they went, they were cleansed. Jesus hadn't done the final sacrifice yet. He is the final high priest once for all. Why didn't he just examine them and declare them clean and say, I heal you? Because he wanted them to go to the priest. He followed Levitical law. His work on the cross was not yet complete. So what did he do when his work was complete? When he rose from the dead that night, he went up to those locked doors and they were locked for fear of the Jews. And he breathed on them, those 10 new priests, 10, the divine order, 10, who can restore the divine order of sin and fallenness from God. 10 with the power and the authority to forgive sin. Judas had hung himself. He wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there that night. There were 10. Supposed to be 12. There were 10. He's restoring the divine order. That's what 10 is. 10 are present. The divine order is restored. He breathes on the New Testament priest, a new priesthood that can cure the spiritual leprosy of sin. He says, as the father has sent me, so I send you. Everybody can forgive their own sin. No, these 10. He's talking to 10 men. So I send you. And when Jesus has said this, he breathed on them, the 10, not everybody, that'll be 50 days Pentecost later. He breathed on the 10 and he said to the 10, receive the Holy Spirit. Those new priests get a private Pentecost with Jesus breathing on them. And he says this only to these 10, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He's giving them the power and the authority to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. That's what gets Jesus killed. They say he's saying he can forgive sin. He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sin. He's God. He's conquered death. He's shattered it. Now he's giving these ten the power to forgive sin. That's amazing. That's a new priesthood. They're in the order of Levite. No. Melchizedek. Jesus is from Judah. They're in the order of Melchizedek. God knew. That's why you put Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis 14. They have the power and the authority to forgive sin that only God can bestow. And Jesus restores the divine order of a new priesthood, 10 priests. And leprosy is a symbolic spiritual symbol for sin. So the sinners, go show yourself to the priest, and they were clean. Us, go show yourself to a priest and be made clean, be healed, be made whole. There's so much grace in that sacrament when we come back into right relationship. My one defense, my righteousness, being in right relationship with God and his church. And the priest can do both because he sits in persona Christi of Christ, God, and he's also in the church, in the mystical body of Christ. It's a one flesh marriage. He's the bridegroom. The church is the bride. He can do both. Some congregations make their people stand in front of the whole congregation and tell their sins to the church. Isn't this merciful? We just have to tell the priest in privacy behind the curtain. Only a priest in the order of Melchizedek can forgive sin this way, not an ordained deacon. They cannot absolve sin. They do not have authority from God. The Lord has sworn, and he will not repent. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. Jesus came to do what? To seek and save what was lost, to set captives free. He works through the priesthood. He is the high priest, the final high priest, and he has a priesthood on earth with arms and legs. We need ordained priests to carry out his mission. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back. One out of the 10, one-tenth. The first fruit, the first fruit, the 10%, offered first back to the Lord, a Samaritan. One out of 10 coins. Remember, one out of 10 coins, the lady had one of 10. One out of 10, she got her divine image back. She found her coin. This one leper gets his divine image back. One out of 10, he turned back. He praised God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, and he gave him thanks. He's glorifying God. And guess what? Now he was a Samaritan. Oh, no, not a Samaritan. The good Samaritan was generous and loving and merciful in Luke 10. Now this healed leper Samaritan is full of gratitude and thanksgiving. No, 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 not a Samaritan. And Jesus said, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give thanks and praise to God except this foreigner? There was a wall in the temple that foreigners couldn't go over, the court of the Gentiles. If you cross it to get closer to the true presence of God, you will be killed. It says you're taking your life in your own hands. There's a sign. This foreigner is standing face to face with God. The wall's been shattered. Paul writes about that. He says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Only the foreigner has returned to glorify God and give thanks. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Do we praise God when we're forgiven of sins in confession? When you come out of confession, do you say, I glorify you, God. You've healed me. I'm a leper. You made me clean. You've given me my divine image back. You've restored me. I can feel again. I'm not numb. I'm, I'm not numb to sin. I've been cleansed. I've been set free. Do we thank God? Protestant converts are extremely grateful after their first lifelong confession. They come out of there just on fire. Every single time we go to confession, Jesus wipes the slate 100% absolutely clean. He has no memory of what you've done in the past. You get a fresh start. You get a do-over. You get to begin again. And it just takes this much faith to get absolution, to get all those sinful roots eradicated out of the sycamine tree of your life and be done with sin until your next confession, right? (laughs) (laughs) Let's pray. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of confession. Lord, we're such lepers. We're so disfigured. Your image could be so much brighter in the world if our faith could mature. You say it only takes faith the size of a little teeny, tiny mustard seed to uproot all this sin in our life. Give us that type of faith, Lord God. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.